It is the month of Adar. We're a bit late this month. We had a little bit of a technology snafu. And thank God that issue, I think, has been resolved. I hope it's been resolved. Uh, but it's almost halfway through the month. Of course, Adar, we have the great festival of Purim. And today is the day before Purim, which if you look at your calendar, it's called Tainus Esther or Tanis Esther, Tanit Esther, everyone, everyone pronounce it differently. But it's a fast day. And now it's 4 p.m. Houston time, and it's an hour later in Cincinnati, so both me and Rabbi Botnick are totally famished, and our voices are parched, and we're just fantasizing about food, because we've been fasting all day. But that's okay. But I want to give you a little warning, a little disclaimer, that I'm not prob- I'm probably not bringing my A-game here today, but Rabbi Botnick, even when he is with half his brain tied behind his back, even when he is famished, and he is hungry, and he is thirsty, and he is cranky, he still will deliver top performance, I am sure. Is that right, Rabbi Botnick? I highly doubt it. (laughs) I've never tried it, but I highly doubt it. Well, it it. does keep your mind off the food, so that will help, I guess. Well, as it happens, a lot of this year is about fish, so I'm just going to be thinking about Fried fish or salmon. <laughs> well, or it won't cause sort. any problems for me, as you know. This is not going to be any problems for me because, uh, <laughs> as the the audience knows, I'm not a fan of of fish. Now, I want to make a quick note before we begin. Our mutual sister in law, Tova, she complained to me. She says, "When you and Shmuley do your podcast, it's way too formal. I say Rabbi Botnik, and you say Rabbi Wolby. Dispense." With the formalities, just call each other Shmuley and Yaakov, and it's Tova's will. And we know what happens to those who disagree with Tova. We don't want to be there, and she's going to be so mad at me for mentioning this. But uh, maybe she does have a point. What do you say about that, Shmuley? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, Yaakov. Um, all right, anything for Tova, just this okay, once. Okay, we'll see. I, I might lapse into Rabbi Botner territory, but uh, maybe that's a good policy going forward. All right, then. Uh, I'll just call you Rabbi Yaakov. Uh, Listen, it's fine. Call me Yaakov, Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov. Either one is fine. Um, But um, I just wanted to note that, and and I know she'll be very mad at me for mentioning this. So we'll get some some flack for that. All right, then. Shall we? Shall we jump into it? Yes. Okay, so it's the month of Adar. Um, As you mentioned, we're a little late. It's actually... um, Almost perm, a couple hours. But I think something that really isn't discussed, strangely, I haven't seen it even in the earlier works, is the Shevet, the tribe that is aligned with the month of Adar. And that is, interestingly enough, Naphtali. So, Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov, what do you even know about Naphtali? Uh, very speedy. That's all I could think of. It was very fast. Uh, compared to a uh, a deer, um, but not really, not much about the tribe of Naphtali. Right. Okay. So we're going to try to take a deep dive into Naphtali. I also did not know anything about him uh, previously. I still don't. I just kind of formulated my own ideas. Um, moving along, this is very common knowledge, which is the zodiac sign for the month of Adar is, um, this is probably the most well-known, is fish, right? Mazel Adar Dagim. The sign for Adar's fish. It's even quoted, I believe, in the Gemara itself that Haman chose the month of Adar because he felt like just as a big fish swallows a small fish, so too it will be an auspicious time for me, the big fish, to swallow the Jewish people, which he considered to be small fish. So the month of Adar is fish. All right, so what do we know? We know Naphtali and we know fish. Yes. All right, so we have Naphtali and we have fish. But here's what's cool. What's cool is that Naphtali and fish actually come together. And that is, there is a verse in Devarim, towards the end of the Torah, where it says, Yom Vidarom Yerusha. Rabbi Wobi, do you know where exactly that verse is? This is Devarim, chapter 33, verse 23. This is at the end of Moshe's life. The very last day of his life, he gives a blessing to each one of the tribes. And to the tribe of Naphtali, he says in this verse, Naphtali sevaratzon umalei berkas Hashem yam vidarom yirasha. 
Right. So this is talking to Naftali. And what is, Rabbi Wally, what is the simple translation of those words? Svaratzon. Uh, Svar means to be satiated. Uh, I think that's what it means, right? Ratzon uh, means uh, uh, will or desire. So he's satiated with will. I guess that's the simple translation. And he's full. He's replete with the blessing of Hashem. Yom. So Yom is west. And Darom is south. Uh, Yerusha, he will inherit. That's what, that's how I would translate just the word for word. Right. Okay. And that is the, the simple translation. The Targum Yonason ben Uziel, who often veers off of the simple translation of the verse and gives you a deeper insight, he writes, and Rebbe, well, if you have a Chumash in front of you, you, you can read it to me because I'm ad living here, but he, I know that he writes the words, and Naftali will rejoice with the fish of the sea. All right, so before we even begin to understand that, here's what I see. I see that Naftali is intricately related to fish. And also I see that Naftali is rejoicing with this fish. And as we all know, the famous edict of the Gemara Right? We're supposed to be happy in the month of Adar. So here I see happiness, fish, and Aftali all coming together. What do you what do you say to that? Well, I, this is a good setup. We have a month that a lot is happening in this month. It's a month of great joy and uh, festivities. It's a month that's associated with fish, uh, much to my consternation, as you know. It's associated with the tribe of Naphtali, and Naphtali is supposed to be happy with fish. At least that's the translation of the Yonas and Benazil translator on the Torah, on the verse that Moshe applies to the tribe of Naphtali. Right. Okay, so this, this is all way above my head, uh, but we're going to try and figure something out. I want to move away from the Naphtali topic and just ask two very general questions. One is in the, um, I don't even know what you would call it. It's not, it's not a prayer. It's something we, we recite after Megillah. It's a song, right? Shoshanas Yaakov. In there, we, there, you find a terminology, Techelas Mordechai. We wrote some Yachat Techelas Mordechai, right? Now, yes. Rabbi Wobi, I know that the topic of Techelas is very near and dear to your heart. Um, as, as it should be to anyone who wants to fulfill the Almighty's Mitzvot, yes, but go ahead. Yeah, well, 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 I hate to say it, but trails come from a fish, so you're kind of, please you're kind proceed. of in a quagmire there. <laughs> <laughs> so the Tchelas Mordechai, what on earth is the Tchelas Mordechai? What are we referring to? Mordechai was wearing Tchelas? It's, I mean, uh, very I mysterious. It was, but very mysterious. Okay. Uh, final question is, and I have no idea if I have the right to ask this question. I am, um, I am not a linguist, certainly not a Hebrew linguist. Uh, it says, Vina hafochu, right? That um, it, it, it reversed, right? That's, that's the, the whole story. It was a story of reversal, the Purim story. And I don't know, I, I'm going to turn to you, Rabbi Wilby. Is the word Vina hafochu, um, would that be your choice way of phrasing it? Or would it be like, Vihafochu? Like, what's that extra nun? Isn't, doesn't nun know like, we, we did this together? Interesting. So, uh, in the Book of Esther, which is the book that we read on Purim, which is the book that chronicles the Purim story and miracle, when it talks about the great miracle that happened, it says that everything was the opposite. You know, the Haman builds this gallows and he's going to hang Mordechai, but no, actually, Haman himself gets hung on said gallows. Oh, and all the Jews are going to be killed by their enemies? Actually, no, their enemies will be killed by the Jews. So that's a, a verse in the book of Esther, chapter 9. And you say that grammatically, it should not say v'nahapochu, it should say something else. Nahapoch um, means like, we will, we, we turn things on its head. We inverted things. Uh, it should say v'hafochu. It was the opposite. Okay, that's a, a linguistic question. It's a, more of a, an exotic question, but I, I'm buying it. I, I will see where you take us with this idea. Rabbi Botnik, also known as Shmuley. <laughs> all right, yeah. I, I'm going to try to answer the question, assuming that it's a question. Um, all right, now we're going to take a huge leap here. 
mm-hmm. and jump into something that is entirely Kabbalistic. I have no idea what it means, but we're going to try anyways. And this is in a work called Beis Olamim, from the very, very great Kabbalist, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Chaver. He was a very great uh, Kabbalist. So I'm going to read to you a couple of sentences here. Let me know what you think about them. So he's referring to the Tcheles, Rabbi Wobli, once again, one of your favorite topics. He writes like this. The Gav Nadila, its color, Nafik Michad Nuna, comes from one fish. Okay, I'm going to skip a couple of words here. Heim Nikra Nune Yama. All right, this is called the fish of the sea, right? Nune Yama, Rabbi Wolbi, um, those words just sound familiar. You just read them to me in the Targum Yonas of Menuziel, the Chadi Benune Yama, right? So the, the Tcheles comes from this Nune Yama. Who sowed nun de noflim? And this is the secret of the nun of noflim. Who azel beyond kinaris? And it swims in the kinaris. Okay, so here's what I see. The tcheles comes from a fish that swims in the kinaris. And this is the secret of the nun of noflim. Okay, so we see from Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Chaver that there is this fish that swims in the kinaris. And now the Kinaris was in the tribal portion of Naphtali. Is that correct, Rabbi Wolby? Yes, uh, the verse says so explicitly in the book of Joshua, 1935. All right, so Kinaris is in the portion of Naphtali. So already we know that the Kinaris is going to be somewhat Adar-related, because Naphtali is associated with Adar. And this fish swims there, and the Tcheles comes from it. And so already what we're seeing is a, a, a bunch of more pieces come together. So Naphtali and fish we already knew were connected because of the Targumionis and Benuziel, right? Which was connected to Adar simply because we know that Adar is fish and Adar is happiness. And now we're seeing that Tcheles is also coming into the picture because we know that Tcheles comes from this fish that swims in the Kinaris that is in the portion of Naphtali. How does all that sound? A lot of, a lot of moving parts here, but uh, there's, uh, obviously they're all connected. Right. Now, I will point out one question, which I'm sure is percolating in your mind, and that is that the Gemara Megillah, I believe, I know, says that the, the Tcheles comes from the Chila zone, which is actually in the tribal portion of Zevulon. So that is a good question, and I've seen that question asked. I, I saw different answers. Some of them were Kabbalistic. Some of them explained that what... Um, this idea that there's Tcheles coming from the Kinaris means it, it means in a more uh, mystical sense. But either way, that's what it says. Now, Rabbi Yitzchak also said that this fish, which is called Nun, right? A fish, in Ar- the, the Aramaic word for fish is Nun. That's also the secret of the Nun denoflim, the Nun that falls. Now, what he's alluding to is that in Ashrei, Ashrei is arranged alphabetically, so you have Aleph all the way through Taf. Each verse begins with one letter. But the only one that's missing is Nun. And the reason for that, the Gemara tells us, is because the word Nun stands for Noflim, which means, the word Noflim means those who fall. And uh, we don't want to, that, that that's very negative. We don't want to begin a verse with a negative implication. And later in the next verse, it says, So mechasham l'chala Noflim, that God will erect, God will uplift all those who fell. So we skip the, the part of the Noflim and we go directly to the phase where God is actually lifting up those who fell. Okay, so here's what we know about this fish. It swims in the Kinaris, the Tcheles comes from it, and it is connected with the idea of falling, of Noflim. Now, what I thought to be interesting, was, again, we know that this fish is going to have something to do with Naphtali because it is swimming in the Kinaris, which is in Naphtali's portion. But it struck me that the word Naphtali, if you rearrange the letter, spells Nafalti, which means I fell. So here would be another connection, another dot to add in this very complicated puzzle that Naphtali is also perhaps associated with the idea of falling, nafalti. And so again, he would be the fish, he would be the, the kinaris, the trelas, and now the falling. 
Are there will be. Are we on board? Yeah, there's so many moving parts here, but let, let, let me try to assemble them over here. We know the month of Adar is associated with the tribe of Naphtali. We know that the mazel, the zodiac sign, is fish. We know that this is a month of great gladness and joy. And we see these ideas all intersecting together. So um, when we read about the blessing that Moshe gives to Naphtali, the Targum Yonasan, again, written by one of the authors of the Mishnah, so it's very ancient, and it's very uh, credentialed, very reputable. He says that when it says that uh, when the secret behind Moshe's blessing to Naphtali was that he'll be happy with the fish. Again, Naphtali, happiness, and fish. And that is also associated with the Tineret, with the, the, the Sea of the Galilee, which is in the tribal portion of Naphtali, which has this fish, again, the same fish, the fish that produces Tcheles, the special color that goes to uh, make wool blue, and somehow I assume that's going to be connected with Tchelas Mordechai, with with that uh, unusual uh, uh, stanza, the unusual uh, uh, verse in the prayer that we say, in the song that we say after the uh, the reading of the Megillah, and the Nun, that Nun, which is the heat with Aramaic word for fish, is also the letter that's missing from the Ashray. And that is connected, we're told by this great Kabbalist, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chaver. It's connected to uh, Tcheles and to this uh, Kineret and this fish. And you're telling me it's also the same letters as Nafalti. Uh, I fell and Naftali is the same letters rearranged. That's what I have hitherto. Okay, now let's try to move on. What is the gematria of the letter Nun? Sorry for putting you on the spot, Rabbi Wolf. This This is much easier. It's It's number 50. <laughs> 50. Known as 50. 50. Right. So 50 is a very fascinating number. We know 50 is associated with the Yovel, right? I'm sure you discussed this in Precious Bahar on your podcast, how you have the Shemitah cycle where every seven years uh, we observe Shemitah, but then there's seven Shemitahs, which lead, right, that would be seven times seven is 49, leading to the 50th year, which is Yovel. And Yovel, uh, there's like a complete cessation of, of just the way the world interacts. And anything anyone ever purchased from a different tribe reverts back to the original tribe. Whatever the laws are, the idea is there, there's just kind of the world stops in a sense. Well, remember, are you, you're, you're old enough to remember Y2K, right? Year 2000, there was this fear that the whole world would just like fall apart. That's kind of I, what... I what, was, um, yeah, I was, I think... Uh... I had just turned 13, so... Oh, well, you were older than I was. I was in fourth grade. I was, I think, nine. Yeah, well, you should listen to me for wisdom, sagacity. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, so Yovel is kind of like the biblical version of Y2K, uh, had Y2K actually panned out. But that's what the number 50 is. Okay, now... Well, uh, the canonical example of that is, of course the Jewish bondsman who opts to stay longer after their seven-year period has, or the six years, six years, then the seventh year, they get sent free. In the event that they choose to extend that, then they get pierced in their ear by the doorpost, by the mezuzah, and they work forever. La'olam, forever. Rashi says it means to Yovel, because the whole world kind of essentially has a complete reset every 50 years. Right. Okay, now, Probably, I would argue, one of the most mysterious parts of the Torah. Now, that's a big claim to make because there's a lot of mysterious parts of the Torah. But, at least to me, is in Parshat Baloscha, the, the uh, inversed, is that the word, the inversed nuns? The backward, backward nuns? Rabbi Wobi, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I think I do, yes. It's a very unusual feature that you find in the Torah scroll, that you have... Um, almost like brackets, like parentheses, in middle of the actual Torah scroll, uh, bracketing out uh, two verses in Parshas Balos. I think it's chapter 10 of Numbers, something like that. Yes, but it's it's, uh, it's backwards-facing nuns, like mirror image nuns. Right, letter nun. nuns, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's a letter in the Torah scroll that's not part of a word. It's uh, It seems like it's this extra letter, um, and two of them... Uh, on either side of two verses, which the Talmud, I believe, what the Midrash tells us, that it's it's, um, it's a break separating 
the two verses from the other parts of the book of Numbers, because it's really another book. In effect, the book of Numbers is three books. You have before those double nuns, double inverted nuns, and you have afterwards, and you have those two verses which constitute their own book. And right. thus, they're and, actually, and what, you know, the, the Pentateuch is not really the Pentateuch, it's the Septateuch. <laughs> it's, not, it's not five books of Moses, it's seven. Exactly. And, and I, again, I don't have the Chumash in front of me, but you know what those verses are in between those two inverted verses? I'll open it, open up the book here for you. Exactly. I mean, just the general gist is that it's the, um, it, it's the, the traveling, the journeying of the Aron. Right. Yes. Okay, I just found it. Uh, it's actually chapter. We got it right. Chapter ten, uh, verse verses thirty-five and thirty-six. It's about the traveling of the ark. Uh, what they said when the ark would journey: Arise, Hashem, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it rested, when the ark rested, because they had to obviously dissemble and reassemble the ark along their journey. So when they left, he would say the following in verse 35, and when, or the, what we said earlier, the aforementioned. And in verse 36, we read about what Moshe would say when it rested. Shuva Hashem rivos alfe Israel reside tranquilly. Hashem among the myriads and thousands of Israel. And then you have the other, uh, backwards facing Really, it's not, it's more than that. It's backwards facing and upside down. So inverted. I think it's the correct word. Inverted nuns. Right. And which are called in Hebrew the nun hafuchos. Now, before I even say anything, you already kind of know where I'm going with this. Because remember, we asked at the beginning, vina hafuchu, why is there a nun there? Um, so where I'm headed is, I'm going to try to argue that it has something to do with these nun hafuchos, right? There's a nun, that's hafuch, that's backwards. Um... Anyways, regarding these Nun HaFuchas, I want to read to you a few sentences from Rabbeinu Bachaye, who is a Rishon, also often dabbles in the Esoterica. One of the and great he, medieval commentators. That's right. Um, and he discusses Shmuley, these, I had uh, to say, you say Rishon, a lot of people don't know what that means. Rishon's in Hebrew, so I say, I, 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 I help fill in, you know, the... Uh, my role here is I'm I'm kind of the the useful idiot here. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> this this podcast would be sorry. so much better. It would be so much better if we weren't fasting. Oh I man, know. I'm like told my mind is like totally <laughs> shot right now. Um, I hope people listen to this on prayer when they're deeply intoxicated. It's uh, best um, served uh with uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly best served with one um anyways it says he's talking about these these nuns and he says that the nun is referring to the this idea of 50 this cessation of just n- n- of nature essentially and he says that when the nun is inverted it's like an absolute, it's like even more intense. Uh, it refers to like an absolute, complete, like decimation of, of nature. I'm trying to find you the exact words. Now the uh, pedantics will quibble that the word decimate only means 10%, but uh, let them quibble. There's, there's plenty of meat in the bone here to quibble with. He says, when you have a ver- uh, an, a letter that is written forwards, it connotes um, existence, because I guess the whole of existence comes from the letters of the Torah. But when it's inverted, that's like a, a destruction of sorts, because right, the world is built with the letters of the Jewish alphabet, and the world gets destroyed when you reverse those letters. So the letter Nun already before it's inverted already has some sort of connection to the idea of bittel, to the idea of like annulment. Uh, once it's inverted, it's like an absolute annulment. Uh, does that make sense? It doesn't, I don't fully understand it, but that's what he says. Yeah. Well, I, I, the way I understand what you read is that if you have a letter that's facing the opposite direction, it's the, it's the kind of the complete opposite of the fulfillment of the meaning of that word. 
So if um, if Nun, or maybe the, I'm giving some commentary here, but if Nun symbolizes this idea of a cycle, you have 15, then another 15, then another 15, and so on, um, maybe the Nun facing the other direction, it's it's like this this total nullification of this whole system. Now, the one thing I don't understand is how he says that. And afterwards, there's this other inverted nun, which is to tell you that there will be a recreation once that phase of annulment is over. He well, says, I'll tell you, that's, that's what it means. It's the opposite of the annulment. It means uh-huh. if you have first the annulment of the ordinary existence, and then the annulment of the annulment. It's like two oh, negatives cool. makes yeah, a no, positive. No, no, that's really cool. Okay, very clever. All right. I, Shmuley, I feel like it was so late in the month. We should have just recorded it when we're drunk anyhow. And then at least we have an excuse. <laughs> Listen, it's always good to downgrade your quality every once in a while so people can appreciate um, the quality when it's not like that. <laughs> that that just assumes that they're coming back, right? Yeah. It has to be tolerable <laughs> enough that they're still willing to come back. All right. I, I think I have faith in our listeners. I think they'll be back when it's not a fast day. So let's not schedule the next one for uh, Shabbos or Batamos or something like that. Or Tishabov. Or Tishabov. All right. But let's get him on. So, all right. So you got these two inverted notes. Now, here's my question. So why all of a sudden, why out of the blue are we alluding to this idea of this annulment of nature, this complete cessation of society? Why? What's it doing there in middle, smack in middle of the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers? Why in the world is that happening? Um, Rabbi Wobi, do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you it's very strange. It's very strange. In the middle of the narrative, it's talking about the, the Ark which of course is the most important, most central, uh, most lofty of all the vessels of the temple. Uh, when the uh, the Jewish people had to move, so they would have to pack up and uh, disassemble the tabernacle and carry everything. Of course, the ark had poles, staves on either side for easy transport. And uh, this is what they would say. This is what Moshe would say when they began their movement of the ark and when they settled it it seems very mysterious that these that these verses should be in a class of their own they're, they kind of symbolize the end of the previous world and uh, when they're done then we could end the end of the previous world uh, or end the ending and begin anew it is a great mystery right now i don't know that i will solve the mystery but let's focus on the what instead of the why what i do see is that when the aron moves that's a very dramatic thing. The whole world is affected by the fact that the Aron, that the Ark is traveling, right? That's what it seems to say. That the moment that there is a Nisoa Ha'aron, Vayhibin Soa Ha'aron, there's this fear that the entire world might collapse. And then ultimately we were, we're told that it will, uh, the, the world will return back to normal uh, by that second inverted nun. So, before when the ark why, is in transport, yeah. when the ark is in transport, everything else is suspended. Exactly. That's what's implied. Like the ordinary operations of the world are just not in effect during the time when the ark is in limbo, when it's being transported. Now, regarding the ark, so the Hebrew word is aron, which is spelled aleph resh vav nun. I've seen this uh, in multiple places, but I think the most explicit is Rabbeinu Bache again. And there he says that the word Aron, he said it comes, from the, the, it comes from the word Nora, which means awesome. Not awesome as it's used uh, in the vernacular, but awesome meaning uh, full of awe. It strikes Wondrous. Awe. Wondrous. And the word Nora, which again means awesome, if you rearrange the letters, it will spell Aron. And he says, because the Torah was placed in the Aron, and the Torah is Nora, um, the Torah itself is awesome. Therefore, it's both called Aron. Now, the, why? Uh, both in the classic definition of the word and in the vernacular and the common usage. 
Right. Sorry, sorry, sorry right. for disrupting your train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> Not on a fast day. Um, the, the, um, I don't under, what I don't understand about this argument is why wouldn't the arc just be called Nora? And was why are you flipping the letters around? Um, okay, this I, this I don't know. But the, the, here's the point. The point is that the Aron and the, the trait of Nora, the concept of Nora, is one and the same. Okay, now here is where things get kind of interesting. There's a very famous Gemara in Yuma, page 69b, which tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu referred to God as Hakel, God, Hagadol, the, the big, the great, Hagibor, the strong, Hanora, and the awesome. Okay, those were four appellations for God. Then it says that when the destruction of the temple happened, Yermia, who was the presiding prophet over that era, Jeremiah. he said, I, Jeremiah, right? So he says, oh, one second. So what's important is that we've incorporated those words, which there, it comes from a verse in Deuteronomy, but we've incorporated it into our prayer, right? In Shemona, saying the very first blessing, we say exactly these words. So Yermia came along, this is a hard concept to understand, and he said, God, I ain't no, no Rosef. We don't see your awesomeness. I have no idea if that's a word or not, but let's assume it is. We do not see your Nora. We don't see it anymore because the base of Mekdash was destroyed. And so he stopped saying Nora. It sounds like they, they kind of removed that word from the liturgy. Then Asa Daniel Omar Nachrim Mishtabdim Bibanov, and he says Daniel, who is an, another prophet, uh, he said similarly that the the Nachrim, the non-Jews, have placed your children into servitude. Aye Givu Rosav, where is your strength? And then Lo Amar Gibor. He he stopped saying Gibor. Okay, so it used to say Hakel Hagadol Hagibor Vanora. They took out Nora. They took out Gibor, and just says Hakel Hagadol. Then, the Anche Knesset Gedola came around, and they said, Men of the Great Assembly. Men of the Great Assembly. Anche Knesset Gedola. Adarabba. On the contrary. Zuhi Gvurosa Gvuraso Shekovish Asitro Ve'eluhe Norosav Shalmale Morosha Kadishbarhu Heich Umachasicholaskem. Okay, basically what they say is, no, we're going to reinstitute those words. Because within in the the seemingly uh, the seeming obscurity of the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people, within that we can see God's strength and God's nora, God's awesomeness, God's awe, I guess. Because if not for God's strength, and for not if not for his awe, he would not be able I mean, hard to hard to say that about God, but he wouldn't like, be able to resist himself from punishing those who have hurt his people. And his people would not have been able to survive while in exile. This so, is a fascinating very Talmud. Fact, very fascinating yeah. Talmud. There, there was a series of descriptions that we gave to God going back all the way to the times of Moshe. Hakel, the God. Hagadol, the great God. Hadibor, the mighty God. Vahanora, and the awesome God. And that was the way we described God for hundreds of years. Temples destroyed... And we see an apparent lack of awe. So Jeremiah, the prophet, he comes and he removes that term, that appellation. Daniel comes and says, well, we're being subjected to them here in Babylon. Where is the might of God? And thus that too was removed. And then the men of the great assembly, they come and they have a completely opposite take. They say, no, no, no. The fact that the nation experienced and underwent what they did is actually a testament to God's might and awesomeness, and they reinstituted those descriptions. And thus we have, even till today, in our prayers, we say these words, Hakel, Hagadol, Hadibor, Vanora. Amazing. Very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Awesome. It is definitely fascinating. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and all I want to take out of it is this. This is what I want to suggest. The Marsha, okay, uh, that is in Hebrew, an Acheron, Rabbi will be translate. One of the later sages. One of the later sages, meaning within the last 400 years, 
Yeah, I would yeah, say about four hundred years ago. Yeah, but uh, widely recognized as one of the greatest uh, commentators on the Talmud. In every standard edition of the Talmud, you will find the commentary of the Maharsha. Uh, also noteworthy because he gave commentary not just on the halachic portions of the Talmud, but also on the agadic, the non-halachic portions of the Talmud as well. And he's, he's basically the first place you go to when you read an agadic portion of the Talmud, such as the one that Shmuley just told us about. <laughs> if this if so this he, if this podcast is a Bob, I'm blaming Tova. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you show know, an insufficient co- reverence to Rabbi yeah, Bonnick, and that's why it was a total disaster. But exactly. yes, so that's the Marsha. Our most, I think that this will be our most successful podcast yet. Because, yeah, like you said, everyone's going to be, just everyone's gonna be listening to it when they're drunk. So it's. Uh... <laughs> so here's what I want to say. The Marsha says that. If you track the timeline, so we know there was the destruction of the first temple and the the prophets of that era, they stopped saying, they discontinued to say, Hakibar Banora, and then it was reinstituted later on. He says, when was, what does later on mean? He said, he writes, and I think he brings more proof to this, but I don't have it in front of me, but the idea is he says, it's referring to Mordechai, it's referring to the Purim story. When the Purim story happened, that's when they said, all right, you know what? We see God within the darkness. We're going to reinstitute the words Hagibar Vahanura. So what I feel like is going on here is that the Purim story, the underlying current running throughout the Purim story is that this Gibor and Nora are starting to resurface. They disappeared. We stopped saying them. And now, all of a sudden, they begin to reappear. God's might, God's awesomeness reappear, resurface in the Purim story. Now, if the word Nora disappeared after the destruction of the first temple and reappeared, what does that mean? Does that not mean that the the Nora, the word Nora, the theme of Nora is in transit? That's what I want to suggest. In a philosophical sense, Nora is moving. It's moving from one place to another, from one era to another, um, you know, maybe from one stratosphere to another. The concept of Nora is in transit. And as we know, Nora and Aron are the same thing. So just like when the Aron is being transported, there's this great fear of falling. There's these two nuns, these two inverted nuns, connoting some sort of cessation. So too, by the Perm story, really during that whole 70 years between the first temple and the second temple, which is when the story happened, there was a very great danger of nephila, of falling. Well, does that sound too outrageous? Well, I, I love the genius, the shared genius of it. That uh, the Aron was in transit at various times, and then everything was up in the air, everything was in limbo, everything was frozen in place. What's going to be? There's no stability. The world as we know it stopped to exist. We have the backwards-facing nun. Okay, when it, once it relaxes, once it rests, once it's in place, it is secure. We could go back, or we could maybe go to the world as it was, or as it will be. And that... Aron in the balance, that art in the balance is the same thing as the Nora, which is in the balance. Again, Nora and Aron, awesome and ark are the same letters in Hebrew. And we have a period where the Nora was suspended, where comes along uh, Jeremiah after the temple is destroyed and says, well, there's no Nora now. And it's restored 70 years later by the Men of the Great Assembly. And during that period, during the interim period, it was akin to the ark in transit, the Nora was in transit, just as when the Aron is in transit, as bracketed by those reverse uh, upside-down mirror image inverted nuns, so too the, the Purim story, and I see kind of how you're going to put this all together uh, with uh, with wonderful um, Botnikian touch, uh, but uh, so too with the Purim story, we had the, the Nora in uh, in limbo, and now it's coming back uh, to where it belongs. Right, and and remember how the um, Urbano Bahai told us that there's there's those two inverted ones. So the first one is the the complete annulment, and the second one is the reversal of that. So ultimately, 
after we experience the danger, if we successfully carry through uh, and the Nora is, is successfully transplanted, so then we're able to invert that and we come out you know, bigger and stronger than ever before. Now, throughout the, the Megillah, we do find the, the term nephila many times. Um, if I could search it, I, I would right now, but I know, everyone will tell me offhand, I know that the nafal pachat Mordechai, saying that the fear of Mordechai fell upon all the people. I know that it says that Haman uh, fell upon the bed uh, with Esther. Uh, I know that it says Hippel poor, when he cast the lots, it says that they, they fell, Hippel, it fell. Um, I do believe there are others as well, uh, Rabbi Wolby, if any of them come to mind, you can let me know. Otherwise, I think we have enough to demonstrate this idea that nephilah is a very real thing. It's like almost like a central theme in the entire Megillah. Is this it's okay. It's okay to ballpark it. We can ballpark things over here on the podcast. It appears many yeah. times, you know. Do the research. Well, I, I, Read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Um. But again, I think that that lines up with what we're saying, that we're, when the Nora's in transit, there's going to be a lot of nephila going on, right? The Nun stands for nephila, the inverted Nun. Now, the Aron, aside for corresponding to the, to the concept of Nora, also corresponds to the Kisei HaKavod, God's throne of glory. I know this uh, because the Balaturim, also an early commentator, tells us this. He writes that, interestingly, he writes that, it says, Vayhi bin Soa Ha'aron, and when the Aaron is traveling, he says that the word bin Soa is Gematria Yaakov, because the face of Yaakov of Vinu is engraved on the throne of glory. Have you ever heard of that, Rabbi Wolby? Uh, which one? That it's a gematria, well, or that I mean, the yeah, face I guess, of Jacob? No, I guess that this, you know, his face is engraved on the, on the throne of glory. I mean, yeah, that's that's well known. That's well known. Never yeah, underestimate so uh, my ignorance, though. No, no, no. <laughs> I I just meant like this idea that the Aron is also somehow associated with that. No, so it's, it's new, also, new to me. The, the, right. So the Ark is also somehow associated with the Kisya Kavod. This the throne of glory tells us. Yes. And he says that it's alluded to in the word bin soa, which is the same gematria as as um, Yaakov. So just to move, move along really quickly, um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up soon. So the tchelas. Remember, we want to get back to the tchelas. The tchelas. Um, we all know the Gemara, and you certainly know because you're a big tchelas guru. Which it says that tchelas doma liyam yam doma Rekia doma le kavod. Is that how it goes? Uh, yes. Uh, the 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 Talmud talks about why we are supposed to wear a tcheles, uh cord by our tzitzis, by our fringes, the blue string, the blue the blue fringe. And it says when you see the tzitzis and you see the tcheles, the blue string, it will remind you of the ocean, of the sea, which looks like the heaven, and eventually you'll make your way to thinking about the throne of glory. So there's a through line connecting the Tchelas all the way to the throne of glory. Having said that, let's try to wrap everything together and answer all of our questions. We know that Adar has to do with fish, has to do with Naftali. That we already explained that Naftali, the Kinaris, is in his portion. We know that there's this mysterious fish that swims within the Kinaris. And presumably that's the fish that Naftali and Adar are associated with. We are taught that the Tchelas comes from that very fish. Okay. Um, so all of that is starting to make a lot of sense. We are taught that this fish, this which is called Nun in Aramaic, is somehow connected to the idea of the letter Nun, which means falling. And we explained that that falling happens when the Aron slash Nora is in transition. So, just to, to back up for a minute, so the Nora is in transition because it was removed from the liturgy when the destruction of the temple happened, and now it is slowly starting to return during the Purim story. So because the Nora is in transition, therefore there's this threat of falling. It evokes this Nun. And ultimately, when 
ultimately when we succeed to replace the Nora, so then we reverse the reversal and we're able to return, you know, bigger and stronger than ever before. Because the term Nora and the Aron are associated with the Kisya Kavod, because the Aron and the Kisya Kavod are, are, they correlate uh, with each other. Therefore, because the Kisya Kavod is, is the same color as the Tchelas, right? The Tchelas reflects the Kisya Kavod. What I want to suggest is that the Perm story, which allows us to return to Nora, allows us to have a stronger connection to the Kisya Kavod, which can come via the Tchelas, because the Tchelas is what represents the Kisya Kavod in this world. Rabbi Wolby, I sound confusing. Are you confused? If you are, I'm, I'm a little a confused, bit. but I'm not sure if that's just uh, the hunger, the lack of the coffee, the lack of anything to drink, and uh, the, just the general physical malaise that uh, I'm undergoing here, and I'm sure you are as well. But it makes a lot of sense, I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But basically, okay, so basically what I'm saying is this Tcheles Mordechai is because the Tcheles is the reflection of the Kisya Kavod. According to the whole theory that we're trying yes. to put forward, we are, we emerge from Purim more connected with the Kisya Kavod than ever before. Because the Nora return, and the Nora is the Kisya Kavod, because the Nora is the same thing as the Aron, and the Aron is aligned with the Kisya Kavod. So when you're more connected with the Kisya Kavod, you have more Tcheles in your life. So that's why... We say Tcheles Mordechai. And that would be the explanation where Vina Hafuchu, the Nun, is Hafuch. Because again, when you reach that point, when you successfully transport the Aron slash the Nora, you reach that point of the Nun Hafuch, that reversed Nun, right? That second reverse Nun, which ultimately returns you back to where you were supposed to be. Now, how would you, how would you say that this applies to the tribe of Naphtali? Like, what's their quality? Oh, that is a very, very good question. And I'm uh, telling you, I'll tell me tell you why I'm asking that. Because uh, when mm-hmm. we're when you were talking about this, and again, I apologize for not doing more research about this. Maybe we should have. But I, 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 I thought of the fact that there's one there's one aspect of the tribe of Naphtali or the individual Naphtali that he's different than everyone else. Like you asked me at the beginning, like what what's Naphtali known for? I said, well, he was fast. Now the reason why I say that it's not not just because he was compared to a deer. But because the the Gemara says, the Talmud says, that when they were going to bury Jacob, so they brought him after a very long and elaborate cavalcade procession to the land, and they were about to inter him in that cave of the patriarch. And I'm pretty sure we've talked about this at some point. Esav was there. And Esav was trying to blockade and not allow the final burial spot there to be granted to to Jacob. And uh, they said, well, you sold the, the spot. You, you gave the spot. You forfeited your spot when you, uh, when you made the pile of the gold and all the silver and all the jewels and precious things that he earned in Padana Rum. He gave it that to you and you sold it. So by right, it belongs to Jacob. And he says, well, where's the contract? And uh, they say, well, gosh, we left it in Egypt. So he says, well, show me the contract and I will allow you to bury Jacob here. And they said, okay, who's going to run back to Egypt? So they sent Naphtali to run back to Egypt because he was the fastest. And he runs off. And uh, as they're milling about waiting for Naphtali to return, Jacob's grandson, the only son of Dan, Hushim, the deaf one, he doesn't realize what's going on. He's deaf and they motion to him. They try to communicate to him, well, this man is stopping Jacob from being buried. He grabs a sword and he decapitates him. And they're able to bury Jacob. And of course, Asaph's head ro- rolls into the cave, right? That's a story. I believe we've talked about that because we spoke about the tribe of Dan. But it hit me that Naphtali is the only one who wasn't present at the death of Asaph. He was he was running to Egypt to try to extract the the, the contract. Uh, so I'm just curious because we're talking here about uh, the nation. This is the story of Purim. The story of Purim is, is overcoming the Esav to some degree. Maybe there's something about the death of the original Esav and the overcoming of the successor, the Agagite successor of Esav, 
maybe the fact that Naftali, this is his month, and there's something about his story and his ancestral land that is represented in this month, maybe that's somehow connected, I was thinking, with the fact that the original time that Asaph was destroyed and decapitated, Naftali was not present. That was my thoughts. I don't know how it connects, and my, my brain that power is, is not quite... I know how you thought of that on a fast day, Rabbi Wolby. That is really impressive. Um, I certainly didn't intend that, and I'm very glad you brought it up. No, but it, it can't be a coincidence, right? It can, can be. Like, no, they, there, was some, there was so much experience that the brothers and the whole family experienced when they, when they were there. They were present. They were on the ground when Esav was decapitated. Naftali was not there. He was somewhere between Hebron, where this cave is, and Egypt. I don't know if he had already made it there, and he already was heading back, or he was halfway there. We don't know, but he was not present, because... When they were waiting, that's when the decapitation of Asaph happened. So I'm just curious to know, maybe if we're able to uh, think about this a little bit uh, more deeply after we have a few, you know, after we're resuscitated after the, you know, the the fast, get a coffee, get a croissant, have a little bit of a, you know, chicken salad. Or I know you're, you've been salivating over the fish that we've been talking about here. <laughs> Get some hamantashen and maybe we can figure out how this connects. But I think this is absolutely brilliant. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I love the idea of the backwards facing nuns. I, I don't know if you actually phrased it like this, but to me, the way I would phrase it is that there's a risk of nephila, a risk of falling when the stabilizing force of the Aron is in transit, is in limbo. And if you kind of turn the nuns and you freeze them in place, maybe that somehow staves off the nephila, which is, I don't know if you quite said it like that, but that's a, that's one of the ways that I kind of formulated it in my head. But a lot of fascinating ideas. Uh, and I'm going to give you, of course, the last word here to, uh, to sign off on this very unusual uh, fast day special on the, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I'll sign off with an apology. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. I I try to be better. Uh, It was a rough couple of weeks for me. (laughs) A lot going on. Um, And then my recorder went bust, so I wasn't even able to record. Till uh, till it was a fast day, I finally got my hands on a substitute recorder. Um, Guys, hopefully, uh, (laughs) new son will be better. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't apologize. Listen, uh, something definitely good came out of this. Because I'm looking at my recorder. It's uh, been almost an hour uh, since we started. Uh, we killed an hour. We're an hour closer to the end of the uh, to, to the breakfast. So that's good. All right, well, at least, at least that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have any uh, complaints that you want to lodge uh, against us for this uh, uh, half baked, well, I don't know what's happy. I liked it. I think it was really good, actually. I think it was one of the best ones. I'm not going to take any uh, flack. Um, I'm going to defend Rabbi Botnik Shmoli. Uh, all the way. So if you have any complaints, send them to me. If you have any praise, send them to botnicksm at, uh, at gmail.com. Is that right? That's right. Well, uh, everyone have a wonderful uh, uh, Purim, happy Purim, uplifting Purim. We should be elevated from the day and from the story, of course, and from this incredible and mind-blowing uh, ideas that you shared. I absolutely love them, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing this uh, wonderful wisdom with the podcast. All right. All the best, everybody.